millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everyone, this is David Kern. Thanks so much for checking out this podcast. I won't keep you too long, but I did want to say a quick word from our friends over at Duke University's Arite Initiative. This summer, from July 9th through the 14th, they're going to be hosting the High School Summer Seminar on Ethics, Philosophy, and Religion on Duke's campus in Durham, North Carolina. This seminar is going to prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching those same subjects in college. Using texts from literature, philosophy, and theology, the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the question of human flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Students will also discuss the ideas of natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. The seminar will be co-taught by several Duke University instructors and professors. It's open to current high school students entering their junior or senior years. There's no fee associated with applying or attending. Let me repeat that. There's no fee at all for applying or attending. And those admitted will be housed in the Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. So again, that's no fee of any kind associated with applying or attending, and it includes lodging and meal cards. Pretty good deal, I think. Students interested in applying should email John Rose at John dot rose at duke.edu that's j-o-h-n dot rose r-o-s-e at duke.edu applications will be considered on a rolling basis until april 26th 2018 and again that's john dot rose at duke.edu and with that enjoy your show hi and welcome to another edition of forma and this one I'm Andrew Kern, and I get to talk with Tim McIntosh Hi. about the topic of reason. In fact, in fact, a biography of reason is what we're going to talk about. Of course, this relates to our summer conference, but it's by no means limited by it. So, Tim, what do you want to talk about? Oh, let's do a biography of reason. Okay, if we were to reduce this to a word, to a single word, what's it about? Reason? Well, reason. Okay. All right. I will. I, I think part of the reason doing a biography of reason could be fun, could be helpful, is that you know all the major time periods in Western culture, which is so much the study of classical Christian education, has kind of a different view, variations on the theme of what is reason. Absolutely. Our vision of what Absolutely. reason is in the 21st century is profoundly different than the medievals. Yes. Which is, in the medievals, have got a lot in more in common with um, Aristotle? the Christian church and with okay. Aristotle. Okay, with both. Okay. And I think they kind of take some things from the Greeks and they use the Greeks' vision of reason, and they kind of um, suit it to their own purposes. But, you know, the Greek vision of reason is different from the medieval vision right. of reason. So yeah. I think just kind of it always helps me when I kind of contextually can make yeah. sense of how people think about thinking. Uh-huh. Are you equating reason with thinking? No, I'm not. 
though I do think, of course, the two are related. But it helps me think, okay, here, here's a great example. Um, Boethius, The Consolation of Philosophy. If anybody has read or teaches The Consolation of Philosophy, and you don't when have- When did he write it? Oh, gosh. I want to, oh, man. Greek, Roman, medieval? Medieval, sorry. Thank you. That was helpful. Medieval. Early medieval. Okay. If you read Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy without having some sort of a notion of how the medievals thought about reason, for me, Consolation of Philosophy can get pretty boggy pretty quickly. Huh. In fact, I don't know that I enjoyed that book very much before I had a notion of how the medievals think about... The medievals have this drive toward reconciling different authorities. Okay. That's not the way that I typically think of reason. I don't read Aristotle and the Bible and think they're bound to be saying the same thing. But I think the the medievals are going to say they're saying the same thing. We just need to figure out how they're saying the That's same really thing. That's really interesting. Okay, so so I want to plunge into that rabbit hole right now, but okay. I'm going to stop myself. Yeah. Because because we got to give, you know, what you were doing was really helpful in in the sense of kind of orienting us. And, and almost moving towards something like an outline, because you've talked now about medieval, you've talked about modern, you've talked about Greek conceptions of reason. So if we're going to talk about a, a history of reason or biography of reason, you know, if it's a biography, at some point it was born. Right. It had its adolescence. It, it's interesting to, to see, did, did it play out like this and is it now senile? But, <laughs> Maybe it is. Yeah. It's certainly forgetful. Or it's it's people using it are. But then is there a is there a um is there a beginning middle and end to it to it when when what okay so i don't i'm gonna have okay i'll just ask this question do you think there's a moment when reason begins in human history before which there was no reason and now there is reason i have two answers to that one answer is yes and one answer is no. no. So. <laughs> now you got to do the medieval thing and reconcile. Right, 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 reconcile. So I think, I think, Sick at known. <laughs> I mean, I think reason is like in its most broad and general definition, it is the word that human beings apply toward making sense out of the experience of the world. And so in that sense, human beings have been using reason since human beings were around. But I don't think that it became a conscientious subject of inquiry until probably something like the pre-Socratics. At least I don't know of any other t- any other human civilization. Maybe there I don't I just don't know much about ancient China. Um, but I think at least in the West, the pre-Socratics are the first one that are conscientiously saying kind of what is this thing called reason? What is this thing called thinking? Okay, so let's assume that. Okay. All right. Then that means that that the pre-Socratics lived in ancient Greece. Right. Before Socrates. Before Socrates, okay. right. So that's where that's where we can say it begins to become self-conscious. Yeah. So far as we know. Let's begin with that hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we have the pre-Socratics. And, and the years we're talking about, Andrew, we're talking like 500 BC, just to help people kind of locate it on a okay. timeline. Okay. So then, so then if we have the, can we just say the Greeks to start with? Great. Yeah. Okay. Now in history, 
what follows the Greeks is the Romans and in Western history, what mm -hmm. follows the Greeks is the Romans. Now, mm -hmm. is that another history era in the use of reason? It's at least worth talking about during, in our biography of reason. And I think there's a little bridge character between the Greeks and the Romans. This is fun because I wonder if you and I tell this story the same way. Go on. Let's see. Alexander is this bridge character between Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Okay between the Romans and the Greeks. So the story, maybe it's hagiography, is that Philip II of Macedonia, father of Alexander the Great, wanted to hire the very best tutor in the world to teach his young royal son. And who did he hire, Andrew? Aristotle. Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Now, whether this is true or not, I believe it's true. I think he really did teach Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great conquers the Mediterranean basin and moves into India, what follows in his footsteps is Hellenization. Mm -hmm. He sort of exports Greek Hellenization ideals. being Greekness. Greekness. He exports Greek ideals to the different cities, countries that he conquers. And so that's the way in which this kind of self-conscious notion of reason, which we're for the sake of our discussion saying starts with the Greeks begins to spread across the ancient world. And eventually that ancient world is conquered by Rome and the Romans kind of mm. inherit Alexander and the Greek notions of kind of like self-conscious reason. Now it's not the same thing. They think about it in a different way. But those two are kind of the Greek notion and Roman civilization kind of get grafted into each other. Okay, so uh, we'll just say there's a, it's another era because they don't think the same way as the Greeks, but they think about reason. Um, and then and then Rome falls very gradually. In fact, it takes longer for Rome to fall than it took for it to build. <laughs> and and you could say that Rome falls really in 1453. Um, the Roman Empire. Certainly that's what the people in Byzantium thought. Now explain that, because a lot of people would not, they would hear 1453. No, 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 no. It fell in the 400s. Right. Well, it's interesting that, that you're right. And you mentioned Boethius yeah. as early medieval. What's interesting about that is he was a Roman senator. Mm. He was Roman, Right. But he was a Roman senator, think of this, he was a Roman senator after the Roman Empire in the West had fallen. So there's still a Roman Senate. Right. And what we tend to feel, if not think, is that, ah, Rome fell and then it was medieval, the medieval times. But it's actually much more of a gradual process. And for example, this is not reason here, but... but Romulus Augustulus is the very last, technically, Roman emperor, okay? And I think he was about nine when he became emperor. And when is he living? Rough okay, dates. Okay, so, so, so he's, he's done ruling the Roman Empire. Was it 476? Yes. Five, yes. Okay, so, so the Roman Empire, technically, on paper, comes to an end in 476. But why? Why did it end then? Because... Instead of the Roman emperor, Romulus Augustulus, ruling, now an Ostrogothic king, who has been ruling for quite a long time, takes this boy and says, you're done now. You're just a figurehead. We're done with you. 
you're going to go and we're not going to kill you. You're just going to go retire at like 18 years old. Right. He goes and retires at some beachfront, right? And and he goes to his villa and he's done. So there wasn't a violent ending to the Roman Empire in the West in that sense. But already by then, the city of Rome had been sacked a couple of times. Um, the city of Rome was really not technically very important. The capital of the empire had moved to Ravenna and, and at times to, to Milan. So, so this very gradual decline of the Western Empire led to some big political decisions. One of the biggest was, I mentioned the capital moving to Ravenna. Well, before that happened, Constantine became Roman emperor around 300. And he said, man, all our problems, all these invasions, and all our rich cities are Greece and eastward, right? The Ottoman, not the Ottoman, but but the Asia Minor, yeah. the what we now call the Middle East, North Africa. That's where all the wealth of the empire is. Rome itself is in. De- I believe I read somewhere that Rome declined in population from a million people in four hundred to one hundred thousand people in five hundred. No way. It was a collapse. People leaving the yes. city or people dying. Both. Okay. I mean, there were plagues, there were people dying, but there were people that just, it was a time when city life was being abandoned. Yeah. People were leaving the cities. Okay. But the capital city, especially, and it wasn't safe. And so closer to the military encampments were cities like Ravenna and Milan. So they moved the capitals up. So then Constantine looks at this and says, wait, this is a bad place to have my capital. Right. And that's why he establishes Constantinople, or if you like, um, Byzantium. So so he's moved the Roman capital to the east. Now, this is significant when it comes to reason, though, because you now have a very Greek, from that point forward, you have an increasingly Greek empire to the point where some people don't like to call it the Roman Empire. They call it the Byzantine, Byzantine Empire. Right. But they called themselves Romans. Mm-hmm. Why do they call themselves Romans? Because they were a continuation of right. the empire. So, for example, now to, to create some confusion in, in Western, I mean, in historical sequence, when Charlemagne is crowned Roman emperor. In what years are we talking about? Christmas yep. Day, 800. Okay, Charlemagne is, is crowned by the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, on Christmas Day, 800, as the empire, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. That means the kingdom of the Franks has just become the Roman Empire. Mm. Okay. Why the Roman Empire? Because the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, Rome has the authority to name that king. Well, when the Eastern Emperor gets the news that he's done this, it's deeply offensive. You can't call yourself the Roman Emperor. I'm the Roman Emperor. It would be like if somebody established a new capital in Kansas City and said, this is my kingdom, right? And, and right. Con- contrary to Washington. <laughs> now, now I, I probably shouldn't go into that much detail just on the historical details, but the, the basic point is... In regard to reason, Greco-Roman, sorry, Greek thinking is different from Roman thinking. And when the empire is is Grecianized or Hellenized and Byzantineized, it takes a different approach to reason and thinking than during the empire. Now, when we see Boethius, he has something more like Byzantine than strict, let's say, Cicero, I would say. But he's still a Roman. I mean, that's his bloodline. It would be like an American. Yeah. He's going to be an American, right? Yeah. So that's what he is. He's a, he's a Roman. 
and his thinking is more Roman than Greek, I would say, but it's beginning to become more like the Greek. But when you, but, but over that next millennium in the Western empire, well, which doesn't exist in the West, in Western Europe, you see a much more Roman um, f- uh, approach to reason that eventually gives rise, I would say, to scholasticism. And to and I'm thinking in caricatures because it's all we have time yeah, to do. Right. But of course, but I'll say this: from from Boethius up to the time of past Thomas Aquinas, but certainly Thomas Aquinas, reason in Thomas Aquinas, thirteenth century, yeah, yeah, twelve twenty eight to twelve seventy four, I think. He he um he has an incredibly disciplined, rigorous structure of thought, mm-hmm. which causes some people to read it and, and not get the energy right because the form is so disciplined and rigorous, like a military, like an army, right? right? And and they and you can fail to see if you're not, if you don't if you don't feel the life of the ideas he's talking about, it can be really boring reading, right? But that's the Roman mindset more. Okay, now the Greco mindset, the Byzantine mindset, would never do anything like the scholastics per se. Um, it would be more, it would be less formally rigorous. More fluid. Less, yeah, more fluid, more mm-hmm. military. I mm-hmm. mean, less military, mm-hmm. more, more philosophical, more poetic, whatever you want to call it. Um, which is interesting. Now I'm reflecting back on Aristotle teaching Alexander. Alexander's a military man. And what we have of Aristotle's writings is much more militaristic, not militaristic, much more regimented regimented uh-huh. than, say, Plato. So it's almost like, and Aristotle was not an Athenian, whereas Plato and Socrates were. Um, Aristotle has this this um, much more rigorous, disciplined, orderly way of arranging everything in military formation for conquest almost, whereas Plato is a detective searching out. He's, he's a poet looking for the intuitions, you know, yeah. all that kind of thing. Yeah. And that has to do with how we take reason. So if we've got this medieval reason thing going on with the Roman and the Greek distinction, East and West, Eastern Europe and Western Europe yeah. at least, it seems to me like we could almost oversimplify and say there's a psychological impulse toward Aristotelian rigorous thinking, um, disciplined, uh, orderly, let's say hyper-orderly yeah. thinking, and toward and another psychological disposition toward a Socratic questing mm. that both have to be considered when we talk about reason. As a side note, there are two major schools of philosophy in contemporary philosophical schools, and they roughly fall out along the same line. Uh-huh. So continental philosophy uh-huh. is more, it's speculative, it's more literary, it's more interesting. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And... Then the other school, much, much more rigorous, much more concerned with the foundations of logic in step-by-step order. Uh-huh. So it's funny that that What's different... That um, Positivism? Is that no, what? you'd have to ask me. Empiricism? It's the British school, right? It's yeah. continental versus Anglo sphere? I'm striking out. Well, who who would you say? I mean, is this Rawls and, and is it... Is it um, is it people like Bertrand Russell? It would be more Bertrand Russell, well, which is strange. Well, never mind. I started to take us far afield. It would be more Bertrand Russell or maybe G.E. Moore who kind of follows after him. It's precept builds upon precept, builds upon precept. In a now, very rigorous, logical way. Very much so. Right. Right. Why can I not remember the name of school? Let's forget about it. Okay. So now basically our biography, we've got three chapters of development. Greek, Roman, and medieval with yeah. two, two. And we recognize thrusts. that... that 
chapter three has kind of, it's almost like it has two parts, West and East. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But for the sake of simplicity, let's add chapter four. Okay. I'd say Renaissance Reformation would be chapter four. You'd make them one chapter? I'd make them one chapter. Okay. And that's, that's, both of those are specifically Western. Right. I, for me, in telling this story, I, I just am so not knowledgeable about what happens in the East. They didn't write as much. And I haven't read what they have written. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you say that and, and, and we should, okay. Before I comment on that, let's accept that as, as written that there's a Renaissance Reformation period in the West. And the East either is relieved of or suffers from not experiencing it. And what follows, the, what's the next chapter? I'd say it's the Enlightenment. Okay. Now, the Enlightenment follows so closely on the heels of Renaissance and Reformation that in some ways we could probably collapse those two chapters into one. But I think it'd be useful to talk about like the Renaissance and Reformation as a transition. I think so. If we're if what we're talking about is is different modes of reason or yeah. different understandings of the place of reason, I would argue that the Enlightenment is a radical shift. I agree. I think Descartes, 1641, First Meditations, is a massively radical shift. And I think it's one of those historical events that when it's published, I think people actually recognize in the moment that it's a radical step, which is often not the case. Yeah, it you know, I think with, they were prepared for it. Yeah, and they knew what was being cut away. Yeah, okay, okay. I think in, in World okay. War One, when World War One happens and the Western powers are in conflict with each other, I think people knew this is a... After the first few months passed and the, the war became entrenched, I think people knew this is radical. And I think, in, like terms of the history of ideas i think descartes writings people kind of knew in the moment huh. this is a radical shift i've been reading a book about world war one yeah it was written in 1912 Re wait what yeah so it's looking forward two years and it 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 sees what's going to happen yes. who that's prescient it was written by a very militaristic belligerent german named von bernardi it's called Germany and the next war. And in it, he outlines all the reasons why Germany needs to be preparing for it. All the reasons why England wants it. All the reasons why Russia is going to be involved in it and the, and the, the problem that's going to create all the things that have, I mean, it's, it's the most incredible wow. lead up. If you wow. want to understand the great war, I mean, this guy is a German militarist. Okay. So you're Okay. I'd we like, can't get too far afield. I know, on this. I know, I know. Maybe this is a different. <laughs> maybe it's a different podcast. Maybe it is. Yeah, that's a different podcast. Let me just say, okay. I, I have to say this much. You, sh this is not a book I'm recommending as an authoritative source on world history. This is not written by what's regarded as a good man. Okay, but boy, does it shed light. Yeah, on that era. And and my point is that when World War One happened, the leaders of European society knew before it happened that an inflection point in world history was coming. Oh. Right. They wow. Knew. And in the same way, I think with René Descartes, there was a profound sense of need and readiness, which we might want to circle around to. Yeah. Okay. So then, so then the, the, re, the enlightenment you're arguing is influenced at least if not launched by Descartes, I would, I would throw a bacon in that. Okay. Yeah. 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 
Okay. And then, and then what's, if there's another chapter in the life of reason, what comes after the enlightenment? I would almost give the 19th century its own chapter. Now. Do you have a name for it? I would just call it, I would call it like the modern age. What if we called it the romantic era? I'll tell you why I say okay. that. Because, because I think that the, the enlightenment, the reaction to the enlightenment, the, the dissatisfaction of the enlightenment is, is perceived by people like Rousseau as early as the mid 18th century. Right. And, and that, that the perception of what is missing in the enlightenment is what gives rise to what I would consider an overreaction in romanticism. And that gives us the 19th century approach to reason. I absolutely agree. There's an overreaction in the opposite direction away from this kind of like rigorous instrumental view of reason. Um, The reason I'm a little bit reluctant to call it romanticism is because you've got people like Kant in there. Right, right. I get that. And And he calls himself an enlightenment man. Yeah. But I I would contend that Kant did what he did because he's living in the light of Hume on the one hand, but also Rousseau on the other. Okay, let's call it enlightenment. Let's call it romanticism then. The age of romanticism. Okay. I'm fine with that. Okay. And everybody has to understand that we're overgeneralizing because that's what you have to do. Okay. So, so romanticism then, let me say this, that, that how I understand it is that you have a fragmentation take place. You have you have Bacon saying it's all experience, therefore. And when does Bacon live? Just before Descartes. He's roughly a contemporary of Shakespeare. Yes, and there are those, as you well know, who who claim that Bacon was Shakespeare. Right. If so, then Bacon is the greatest genius since Homer. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you snuck that in there. So, well, I mean, come on. So then, so then, um, Bacon turns to a philosophy of experience and observation and what gives rise to empiricism. René Descartes says, no, no, empiricism experience isn't reliable. It's too easy to deceive yourself. You can't trust your senses. So therefore we have to do just reason. Right. And so that gives us the empiricist and the rationalist. And for Descartes, it all comes down to the reasoning process, the logic the you know that's why he says I think therefore I am right. which I consider to be a really unfortunate statement. Uh-huh. But it, like you said earlier, when you kind of recognize historically where it's where it's coming you can see from, where, why yeah. absolutely yes, it's rooted in mistrust. Yes, okay, and he says so. Yes. I resolve to begin with doubt. Yep, okay, that's a crucial move right there. I resolve to begin with doubt. Some people say that's the birth of the modern. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have we have Bacon relying on experience. We have Descartes relying on reason. If you want to oversimplify, Bacon's relying on the senses and Descartes is relying on pure reason. Right. Rousseau is looking at both of them and saying, well, look at the world you've given us. Thanks a lot. Right. I don't, I don't love my family. I don't love, I don't love because I reason myself into it. Right. And so he says, no, there's the heart. There's this, there's this inner it really for Rousseau, it's no, it's the emotions that matter most. Right, right. And so now we have a fragmented, a person fragmented into three functions: the empiricist. I look at the world, I observe, I make observations. Mm-hmm. The rationalist don't mm-hmm. look at the world, just think through things logically. Mm-hmm. And then the emotional self, mm-hmm. which kind of like eschews both of those things mm-hmm. in favor of this kind of like 
how would you describe it, Andrew? Kind of like this inner fountain of primal energy, which mm-hmm. outpours into nature through my emotions. Yeah, and and there's a and it's a deep inner self, right? So so then what happens is. Once Rousseau says that, it's kind of obvious. Everybody knows he has a deep inner self, right? Yeah. And then that leads over the course of time to whole psychological schools. Like I think Jungianism and Freudianism would be in the stream of Rousseau using Descartes. And, you know, there's always the interaction between them. But I find it helpful as a simplistic way to approach any new idea that I encounter to say, okay, what's Bacon's role in that? What's Descartes' role in that? What's Rousseau's role in that? And and are they... Are they integrated? Are they harmonized? Because if I were to look at the modern world post-Renaissance, the word I would use is the age, not of reason, but of fragmentation. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that's where I think we are. So so now we've got the three fragments. Yeah. Mind. Eyes. Ex, eye, yeah, senses. Yeah. Yeah. Let's say reason, not mind. Because okay. the, the, the empiricist obviously is also using experience. Right. But we have experience, reason, and, and emotions. Now, Newton, Isaac Newton comes along, and he uses the experience of science, the, the empirical approach of Bacon, and merges it with the, the rational approach of Descartes using mathematics. And in 1688, he solves all the problems of the universe. <laughs> and, and Alexander Pope writes, God said, let Newton be, and there was light. That, I would argue, is the high point of the Enlightenment. Go ahead. It keeps going, though. I, I, oh, it, absolutely. It depends on what you absolutely. mean by the high point of the enlightenment. By the way, are we getting ahead of ourselves? Probably. Let's let's come back to this, because this would be a good source of discussion. Like, what do you mean that it's the high point of the enlightenment? Okay. Maybe we could, should we finish our... Outline? Biography? Bio, outline? Yeah, yeah. So after romanticism, what do you think comes next? Uh, um us but you know <laughs> you could say you could say postmodernism you could say chaos and when do you date the beginning of that oh well i mean it was conceived in the 19th century um i suppose it was born in the great war yeah that's what that's May, what i would date nietzsche. it yeah i would say nietzsche's kind of the prophet but it doesn't really arrive yeah. until world war 1 because world war 1 yeah. is just this it is so bloody. It is so destructive. It doesn't just destroy human bodies, but it destroys an entire social order. And and minds. And a, minds. Because there's no there's no sense of you can't be a hero in World War One unless right. you're the Red Baron. You right. can't. You can't. How can you be a hero when there's millions of soldiers around you and you're in a trench for Yeah, you're neck all deep in mud for years upon years. So I think the three, so we've talked about modernism has kind of three branches, empiricism, rationalism, and romanticism, or kind of like the outpouring of emotions. I think you could call all three of those optimistic. There's a hopefulness in all three of those, and that optimism suffers a horrible blow with World War I, and And that blow continues... With when because World War Two is just an extension of World it War One, absolutely. So it's it's almost like after the the world recovers, and when I say world, I mean those that were involved in the two great wars. Well, that's the world. They're called world wars for a reason. Yeah. When the world recovers from those two wars and kind of tries to get its feet back underneath it, I do think there's this there's a pessimism that has set in. Yes. 
And sure, there's still moments of optimism. Um, but I think pessimism and gloom and almost kind of like an apocalyptic mm-hmm. sense of history. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's strange to say, say as a Christian, an apocalyptic sense of, because in some ways, you know, Christians are always looking forward to the return of Christ, but there's a pessimistic tone that it takes on. Dispensationalism becomes exceedingly popular. Yeah, I think so. I want to add two thoughts to what you just said that, that, which I think is really important. What you just said, if, if, if we three thoughts, perhaps one of the things is that we can feel like the way things are now is the way things are. And it's hard. It's really hard to feel the transitional nature of the state we're in as a, as a world, right. As a, as a nation. But we are right now, you, okay, so for example, you said when the world got its feet under it, I do not believe the world has recovered from the First World War. I don't know if it ever will. I don't, I don't believe that um, we have got our feet back under us. So Europe right now, um, on the far right, there's books like um, The Strange Death of Europe. Mm. I think it's far right anyway. But, there's, but you know, you, you're seeing this conflict between... between um, nationalism and um, internationalism, the loss of a European identity, the shame that people feel uh, about the European culture who live in Europe. Mm-hmm. And that permeates European society. And so so that's a consequence of the Great War. They've never recovered from the Great War. And World War II, as you said, was very much... A con- I mean, Hitler it's rose... It's extension. It's, it's totally an extension, Yes. And the nice thing about World War II is you, it was the last good guys, bad guys war, right? It was so easy to identify, at least. Whereas Vietnam. It was harder. Yeah. And so the propaganda side was much easier. Um, and then, of course, that reflects back on the on World War I. And, of course, of course, the Germans were the bad guys in World War right. I. But that's a retrospective. Right. Um, so that's, that's the first thing is that we're not living in a moment where things are stable. We are, we are living in a world in transition, and that's why I think, and it's, it's in transition on a global scale, and I think that's why people are both excited and nervous about the yeah, future. Yeah, So along, because people are excited and nervous about the future, I think when we get to chapter six, what are we going to call that? Postmodernism? I was thinking that we could call it the age of cynicism. The other point I wanted to make in that regard is that America's role in World War I is really interesting. Um. The Germans right now, a hundred years ago, because it's you know it's nineteen eighteen, yeah. two thousand eighteen. This week, a hundred years ago, the Germans were beginning their 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 um, last. They had three major offensives this spring that on the Western Front that looked like at the time they were going to win the war, and the British appealed to Woodrow Wilson directly and said, "If you don't." get your troops involved immediately, it's going to be too late soon. Yeah, And so the Americans, because what we forget is we only joined the war in November of 17. We've done nothing significant until now. And and now we bring in about a half million or a million soldiers. And if, and we save the day, which I think is one of the reasons why it's so popular in Westerns to have the cavalry come over the hill. Because that was the American identity. Yeah. We saved the day. Yeah. We came in at the very last minute. We stayed out of the war until the very last minute and then saved civilization. Right. 
That was very much the American idea. And, and the um, loftiness of the American self-perception really begins at that point, the, the, the global importance. And then World War II, a similar process. Europe continues to commit suicide, and America joins well into the war, 1941. Right? Reluctant After to get in Dun- because of World War I. Yes, yes, and yes. Huh. And, and then they get into the war late and now they do suffer but you can't forget that for americans it's always over there mm-hmm. it's always over there until 9 11 mm-hmm. that was that was a tra- after world the civil war of right course. right so so now america is always out of sync with europe the u.s is always out of sync with europe we have to keep that in mind because our approach to reason and and our romantic sort of christianity that's popular in america has survived a lot longer than it did in Europe. But is Europe foreshadowing or is it warning? Right. That's what we have to yeah, figure out. Yeah, that's a big out. question. And my impression right now is that it's foreshadowing because we're becoming more and more like Europe. But it's it, to me, what we're seeing is the, the explosion, the, the dissolution of not of reason itself, but of faith in reason. Mm. In this age, the age of cynicism. And, and, it's, and it's stead kind of a view that what is the ultimate the ultimate is power right how do we get our way it's not by um reasoning together about it it's not by coming to a common table and trying to find commonality that's old-fashioned yeah that's old-fashioned that was that's 12 angry men it's charming it's charming it's quaint but it's not the real like world the real politique of right. of how things actually go so down have we all become prussians why Prussians? Well, because Bismarck established the Prussian Empire, which is what fought, you know, for the Germans in World War One, and then Hitler was the last great Prussian. That was that was the end of Prussianness in Germany. But it was a militaristic approach to life. It was a power. It huh. was it was Nietzschean in the sense of the will to power, which I think you know the will to power in Nietzsche and in most good thinkers is not just the will to power over other people, right? It's the will to live, right? The right, will right, to right. flourish, but the trouble is the will to flourish when it meets an obstacle has what to does decide. It do? Right? Mm-hmm. Is it going to overcome the obstacle? Is it going to play a song together? Is it going to dance or is it going to shoot? Right? And our culture has decided. That's a great way of saying. It. Is it going to dance or? Did you just make that up? It came to me. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, you really did just make that up? <laughs> if that's what you call it, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but that's what our culture is doing now. Is it's deciding the dance steps are too hard to learn. So we're going to shoot. And, and I, and I really do think that, that it, okay, I'll push the metaphor a little further in an age of reason. The function of reason is to teach children how to dance really well so that they don't have to shoot. But in our culture, we're so cynical about reason. Therefore we're so cynical about dancing that all our kids know how to do is lash out. Yeah. Now, of course it's a horrible, horrible exaggeration, so I don't mean to, you know, I don't, I certainly don't want to condemn a generation if, if it's my generation that failed to teach. Right. So, but, but learning how to dance, that's what reason teaches, how to dance with each other verbally, physically, um, uh, spiritually, intellectually. That's what the role of reason is, I believe. Yeah. And, and, and if we, if we go through this biography that we've just now covered, you do have high points. You have you have different views of the the way reason works and what its purpose is and its limits and its powers. 
but never in Western European history, which were Western Europeans as Americans, never in Western European history has there been so little confidence in the place of reason and in the value of reason to bring to bring um, an ordered society and to maintain that order. And that means all you have, if not reason, all you have, either you have the dance or you have the gun. So maybe we should do this. Maybe the concluding chapter, which we're, we're just going to call, you gave a name to it. Coda. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cynical. Cynicism is what I called it. Okay, let's call it the age of cynicism or suspicion. The common term would be postmodernism, but I think I think suspicion works. Okay. Suspicion works. If the age of reason, if we had the age of faith followed by the age of reason, now we live in the age of anxiety. Yeah. I like suspicion. We can go with anxiety. Suspicion or, works. Um, I think there might be, it might be enjoyable to search for kind of like places that we think like, this is a hopeful pocket. This yeah. is a place, this is yeah. a place where we see real fruit emerging potentially. Yeah, that's a good idea. So maybe we could go back. We've got six chapters in our outline. Our six chapters One, two, are three, four, the Greeks, five, six, seven. the Romans, the medievals, Renaissance Reformation is number four, Enlightenment number five. Now, number six is what we're calling the age of romanticism, seven, postmodernism slash the age of suspicion. suspicion. Suspicion is an intellectual form of anxiety. So I like that. If you could think of, if you could describe the Greek view of reason, chapter one, how would you describe it, Andrew? I have a better idea. Okay. Let's wrap up this podcast with that chapter summary. Oh, okay. And then let's do another one where we talk briefly about, kind of about these six different chapters. Seven. That's a lovely idea. We right. just kind of showed the picture album in this one. Yeah. And now we're going to go a little bit we could deeper. Do, we could do seven more podcasts. We could. <laughs> <laughs> let's we'll try to do it in one. Let's see if we can get permission from David. Okay. Well, you know what we could do is we could do it in one and then... Expand the outline and then for let's seven. See. Yeah. Yeah, we got time. Not today, but we got time. <laughs> do you want to say so long? So long. Farewell. See you in part two. Yes. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Andrew. You're welcome.